0: Welcome to Diffusion, the national science show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, Bridget Mullane will talk to Josh Usher from the Institute for Sustainable Futures about carbon neutral cars. Ian Wolfe will look at desktop manufacturing and we'll have plenty more science-gasms for everybody. What more can I say except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore, and first up we have the news with Pat Ruby.
2: Hidden dimensions behind black holes. A new theory on primordial black holes suggests that they could be hiding extra-spatial dimensions. The theory states that black holes could wrap around extra dimensions to form what's known as black strings, like a rubber band wrapping around a fire hose. These black holes might evaporate over time through a process known as Hawking evaporation, and as they evaporate they can also explode in brief bursts of energy that emit a unique pulse of radiation that identify the presence of a new dimension. If scientists can analyse the frequency of the pulse, they can calculate the size of the dimension and learn more about the model of the universe. The theory has been met with scepticism by some cosmologists because it is not yet known if these types of black holes are produced in the first place. Grow your own jawbone in your gut. A 65-year-old man's jawbone has been replaced by a new one grown in his abdomen. It was cultivated from stem cells taken from the man's own fatty tissue. The man's upper jaw had been previously removed because of a benign tumour, and he was only able to eat or speak with the aid of prosthesis. The stem cells were first taken from the patient's fat and grown in a laboratory. After two weeks, a special type of stem cell called mesenchymal stem cells, was extracted and put inside the patient's abdomen on a scaffold of calcium phosphate biomaterial. They grew inside the abdomen for nine months and became a variety of tissues, including blood vessels. The tissues were then transplanted into the patient's head and attached the skull with screws. Professor Rita Suranen of the Rieger Institute of Regenerative Medicine, the University of Tampere, Finland, led the research. She says that this is the first time a patient's own stem cells have been cultured and differentiated into bone tissue in this way. This treatment could represent a new way to create spare parts for the body to treat severe tissue damage. Embryos with one dad and two mums. Hereditary diseases could be treated by adding an extra mums genes to human embryos. A major cause of genetic disease is faulty mitochondrial DNA. Mitochondria are responsible for providing cells with energy. About 1 in 5,000 children suffers from mitochondrial diseases, which can cause liver, heart, and brain disorders. Mitochondrial DNA is inherited solely from the mother. Researchers from Newcastle University, the UK, have created IVF embryos to replace mitochondrial DNA from a mother's egg cell with a second mother donor. The resulting fetus inherits its nuclear DNA and genes from the father and original mother, and its mitochondrial DNA and genes from the second mother. The scientists claim that the fetus would inherit its personality and appearance only from the original parents. However, critics of the technique are afraid this technology could lead to the development of designer babies.
0: And that was Pat Ruby with the news. Now, the next best thing, next big thing in manufacturing just might be reinventing the building-sized factory costing millions of dollars with an army of workers into a programmable desktop machine costing less than $1,000 that anyone can learn to use. Ian Wolfe will now print a microphone, plug it in and investigate.
1: First desktop publishing, now desktop manufacturing. Imagine having machines that can make anything you can think of. The digital revolution came when building-sized, mainframe computers costing millions of dollars and requiring an army of specialists were reinvented as personal computers, costing less than $1,000 that anyone could learn to use quickly. Computers are already universal machines that can be programmed to emulate anything. But the physical results for most people have been limited to printing paper. The next industrial revolution will be to turn a building-sized factory costing millions of dollars into a desktop machine costing less than a thousand dollars that anyone can learn to use quickly. This is the universal constructor, the fabricator, Santa Claus or cornucopia machine that could make more of itself, as well as many other useful things. The philosopher René Descartes proposed self-copying machines 300 years ago. In 1948, John von Neumann proposed a universal constructor that harvested parts to build copies according to instructions on a memory tape. In 1956, Edward Moore suggested that, like a plant, a self-reproducing machine should use raw materials from the ground and energy from the sun. Today, a rapid prototyper fuses plastic to make objects in a 3D printer. The cheapest ones on the market cost about $30,000. The objects they make cost about $2 per cubic centimetre to fabricate. The RepRap Project is planning this year to produce a 3D prototyping machine and free open-source accompanying software that costs about $400 to build and which can fabricate objects at a cost of about $0.02 per cubic centimetre. This is not far from the cost of paper printers right now. The RepRap Project at the University of Bath is working towards making a universal constructor, a printer that can print any three-dimensional object or machine that you want. It starts with being able to make itself, snapped together with plastic parts like Lego. A machine that can copy itself. It starts as a rapid prototyper, the RAP part of the name. A rapid prototyper makes quick prototypes of a design in plastic, built up in layers by an inkjet-like process by an extruder printhead. It's been used to make scale models ahead of production runs in factories. It's a basic desktop factory for plastic things. The brilliant idea of RepRap is to make a rapid prototyper that is made from plastic parts that can be made on a rapid prototyper from a design gifted to the public domain. The first version will need you to put it together from the parts along with a few metal parts it can't make for itself, like a kit. The designing software is free open source Java that will run on Windows, Macintosh, Linux or even a phone. Constructing a shape is like squeezing icing onto a cake using plastic for the decorations. How can they make it so enormously cheaper than the commercial models? Well, because it's like a seed, the machine can copy itself. They currently use the plastic polyoprolactone, which is as strong as nylon and melts at 60 degrees Celsius, but they plan to move over to the biodegradable polylactic acid, which has a much higher melting point and which is easy to make by fermenting starch from vegetables. This way, people will be able to make their own plastic from vegetable waste, plastic from compost that can be turned back into compost, or more plastic, when it's not wanted anymore. Team leader Adrian Boyer is designing a recycler for RepRap to use old plastics from designs that aren't wanted anymore. This solves the problem of both pollution from too many plastic gadgets, and the problem of where to get an unlimited cheap supply of plastic to make stuff with. Imagine the toys that kids will make when they can make anything plastic that they want. When they get tired of the new toys, they can chuck the plastic in the recycler to make something new. They could download designs from the internet, or design something themselves. You'd buy one of the machines, have it make a couple of rep RepRaps, and give them away to your friends. You could then get back your costs by selling a few at the cost of your time to put them together. The design is open source, which means it's available free, and anyone can improve or play with the design. The rep RepRaps would be programmable from a library of freeware designs put up on the internet. The plan is to make the RepRap available to villagers in developing nations, so they can make things locally and cheaply. They'll also share and improve designs for what they need. How are you going to get a machine that's made by others of its kind without already having one? You need to make the machine that makes the machine. So the first project is to make your own 3D printer, the Rep Strap. The Rep Strap lifts itself by its own bootstraps by making your first RepRap, which in turn can make more RepRaps really cheaply. There are four different Rep Strap designs using different materials on the website. The project has the following goals. The rep strap should be buildable by somebody with no special knowledge or expertise, it should require a minimum of tools, and those that are needed should be readily available around the world cheaply. All construction materials should be common, and they should be able to source locally in most of the world cheaply. And finally, the rep strap must be able to produce a hundred percent complete rep. Wrap. Looking further down the track, you want to make say a mobile phone. You will download an open source design like the Google phone, and your computer will program a programmable interface chip or a field programmable gate array chip to behave as a Google phone. At this stage you'll still need to buy a small screen, speaker and battery, but you can make the rest. FPGA chips are now cheap and widely available. They can be programmed to act like any electronic device, from radios to RAM. The RepRap team are building a second inkjet extruder head that can print insulators and conductors into circuits for you to plug chips and motors into, so your new devices are ready to go. As the designs are all open source, people from around the world will be able to improve on the designs and update and upgrade as better ones come out. Every suburban village will have fabricators, all the school kids will learn to design what they want to print out, or adapt designs they find online. A team at the New Jersey Institute of Technology have used inkjet technology to print up cheap, flexible solar panels, using carbon-60 buckyballs and bucky tubes for the conductor. Bucky balls are nanometer scale molecules made of 60 carbon atoms arranged like a soccer ball. Bucky tubes are bucky balls with open ends. They found that the nanoparticle bucky balls and tubes conduct better than copper, and carbon is cheaply made from soot. A team at MIT have sculpted nanoparticles with interfering ultraviolet light beams to make particles designed with the exact chemical properties they want, at about 10,000 particles per second. This will be used to make anything from pharmaceuticals to electronics on the desktop. At Carnegie Mellon University, they've been working on inkjet extruders using biological inks of hormones and stem cells to print up muscle and bones. The first RepRap machines will be given away as seeds in 2008. The project's slogan is Wealth Without Money.
0: That was Ian Wolfe, I think version 3.5, printing up a Santa Claus universal constructor on his cornucopia machine through 3D printing and the wonders of open source hardware. I have no idea what I just said, but it sounded pretty impressive. And if you want to know more, go to reprap.org to find out. That's reprap, R-E-P-R-A-P.org to find out. And you're listening to Diffusion, the international science show. Hybrid cars like the Toyota Prius can reduce a driver's carbon footprint, but can they give us the carbon neutral commute? The Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS and the Melbourne company SensCorp have joined forces in a project to add a plug-in battery to a standard Prius and allow it to draw power from outside the car, preferably from new- renewable sources. Bridget Mullane talked to research consultant Josh Usher.
3: How does the main battery work in a standard Prius? In a
4: standard Prius, the way the battery pack works is through charging normally during the time of braking. So for example, when you're approaching a stoplight and you put your foot on the brake, if you put it on softly, then the energy actually is generated by an electric engine that's in your car and it goes straight into the batteries.
3: Okay, now what does your extra battery add to this?
4: Well, that regular Prius battery only gets its charge when you're braking or in a few other specific modes, but it doesn't get any energy from outside of the vehicle. So what's new about what we're doing and um, this will be the first plug-in Prius in Australia we're hoping, is that you can actually get energy from outside the car and put it into the batteries. Now this is the plug-in concept, so you can charge off wind energy uh, overnight um, with a green energy contract and then drive your car off the energy that you've put into this electric battery until that battery is depleted.
3: Now, how did you start this project?
4: Well, um, this project was conceived uh, as an idea really by, uh, by Chris Dunstan and the team here, but it really came together with the funding of Peter Zentel. Now, he runs a company in Melbourne uh, called ZenCorp, and they have probably Australia's greenest building at 40 Albert Road. and um, was the first building in Australia to get a six-star, green-star rating. He put forward the funding for this, and he'll actually be driving the car in Melbourne on his regular commute and charging it off the solar energy he generates on his building, so fitting in with his, uh, his plan of being carbon neutral.
3: Okay, now it's supposed to be a lithium-iron-phosphate battery. What kind of battery is that?
4: We're not going to be starting with lithium iron phosphate. Lithium iron phosphate is probably the leading edge of, of batteries at this moment that are commercially available. It's like any battery that you would have in a mobile phone or a laptop computer, um, except for it has some properties that make it a bit different. The big one is that all these problems with laptops catching on fire and all that stuff, is uh, is basically solved in these batteries so they're very fire resistant they're resistant to things like impact and so they make a perfect battery for a vehicle they also have very high energy and power density which means that you can put a lot of a lot of charge into them and they can deliver that charge quite quickly
3: okay so what is the kind of battery that you're putting in right now into the one you're working on?
4: well we're doing a prototype vehicle with lead acid batteries now lead acid batteries are the same batteries that you have in a normal car under your bonnet once that proof-of-concept car is built, we'll be quickly replacing those with nickel-metal-hydride batteries. Those are the batteries that are in the Prius right now, so the pack that already exists uses that same chemistry. We will be looking at doing other cars in the future with lithium-ion phosphate batteries.
3: If the battery you're going to use is nickel-metal-hydride anyway, why can't you just add a plug somewhere to the existing battery? Why do you need a whole new battery?
4: Uh I guess there's, there's a few reasons for that. One is the battery that's in the Prius at the moment isn't very big, so it wouldn't actually take you very far. The batteries that we're adding are going to be quite a lot larger. The second reason is because of the way Toyota has designed its control systems, which basically means if you add a plug and try and charge the batteries that are in there, you'll get a lot of faults in the computer. Um Toyota doesn't want you to interfere with that. It's actually also very dangerous to work with that high voltage equipment that's there. So what we've done is add another battery pack on top of that that's slightly larger and allows you to go a bit further. We're talking about ranges with a nickel metal hydride pack of around 30 kilometers.
3: Okay, what if the car's just sitting there and not used for a couple of weeks? What will happen to the batteries then?
4: Well, the batteries have a natural discharge rate when they sit there. Um, it depends on the battery chemistry, but a few weeks will be fine. There's no problem.
3: The existing battery does charge as the car drives along. This add-on battery, would that happen to that one as well?
4: Um, it would happen in exactly the same way the existing battery works. It charges as the car is braking.
3: Okay, so it just depends on how much braking you, you do. So could you extend the range by the braking pattern?
4: Uh, no. Because of the losses, things like wind resistance, rolling resistance, and the internal... Um, inefficiencies in your electronics and your engine. It um, means that you have a finite distance you can go. Generally the slower you go on the smoother surface and the flatter it is, the further you'll be able to go. Every time you break you only get some of the energy from that braking. There's still some energy dissipated in losses, as heat, all sorts of things. So that when you accelerate again back up to the speed that you were at, it takes more energy than if you would have stayed at that same speed the whole time. So the idea is no, if you're breaking and starting again, breaking and starting, you don't get extra range out of it.
3: How much extra space would your new batteries take up?
4: They're not small, um, but you don't see them. Uh, the batteries take up the space um, above where the spare tire sits. It's actually under the carpeting at the back of the boot. So when you open up the back of the car, you don't see anything different, and in fact, you don't feel very much different when you're driving either.
3: Now, when you get your prototype to work, do you. And you intend to expand your production here, or are you just doing research?
4: Uh, UTS is a research institute, and the Institute for Sustainable Futures, um, where I work, is part of UTS. Now, UTS is very keen on on the research side of it, and looking at the sustainability aspects of this project, as well as another much larger project that we're working on, which is called Intelligent Grid. The ordinary person, if you're very keen on these issues, there's a person named Stan Baker um, in Sydney who will be starting a conversion company converting Priuses to plug in hybrid electric vehicles. Um, you then go and make sure you had green power through one of the major energy retailers, charge your car off the green power, and then use it for your daily commute.
3: How does using this car help the environment?
4: Well, it, it does it in a few different ways. Now, the big key here is that you have to charge your vehicle off a clean energy source for there to be any real impact. In fact, if you charge it off the New South Wales or Victoria energy mix as we have it now, you're probably slightly worse off than you would be with your regular hybrid. Now you're still a lot better than the average car of the same size and weight, but the real gain here comes when you charge it off renewables, um, especially intermittent renewables like wind energy. The nice thing about this technology is it it couples very well with these new technologies like wind energy um, because wind blows at all sorts of different times, but if you have all these batteries out there in cars, we can potentially take all that energy and then put it back into the grid using what we call vehicle-to-grid technology such that we can uptake much, much more wind in our system and do it very reliably.
3: Now, isn't it true that some of the car makers will be doing plug-in hybrids soon, so you wouldn't have to convert them?
4: That's right. So, on the next level of enthusiasm um, would be if you want to wait for one of the car companies to produce these. Uh, Toyota is planning on releasing its plug-in Prius in 2010. Now, it will only have an all-electric range of around 11 kilometers, which is okay, but not great. Um, GM is also planning on releasing a car in 2010 called the Volt, um, that will have a much longer range and um, is is a very different architecture to the Toyota Prius.
0: That was Bridget Mullane travelling by public transport to talk to Josh Usher of the Institute for Sustainable Futures about the plug-in Prius. And finally, our erstwhile producer, Pat Ruby, has been doing some research on molecular taxis. There are these itty-bitty little tetrahedra which can go running up and down your length of DNA. They sound so funky and
2: far out. Pat, what have you got for us there, mate? Uh, thanks, Locke. Um, this is actually uh, a bit of research that I picked up from New Scientist Tech. Um, a group of researchers, they're led by a guy called Andrew Tupperfield from Oxford University in the UK, and some colleagues at the University of Bielefeld in Germany, um, have designed, well, um, have, have actually put DNA to a different use. Now, when we think of DNA, we think of genes and and basically the stuff that makes us who we are but they're actually using DNA more as a functional little molecule to carry out certain tasks in a cell In a cell, so almost like uh, little robots so what they've got is they've actually got a section of DNA um, which is a certain shape very very small only about 3.4 nanometers wide um, in a tetrahedral structure and they add another piece of DNA to it which makes it shift makes its shape change a little bit. And you might be thinking, well, so what if it's making the shape change? But by actually making the shape change, they're actually making it move. Mm. It's changing its structure. It it can can sort of walk. It can walk, yeah. Yeah. It's like two little legs that are sort of coming apart and they're able to walk. I think they're called DNA struts. Yep. Yeah, DNA struts. Um, And what they're doing with this is they're they're hopefully going to be able to uh, use this to actually walk up and down molecules um, for whatever purpose they may need them for. So maybe things like repairing proteins. Another another thing that's been um, suggested um, is that they could be used as drug delivery capsules. Um, and we've done some features before on diffusion about new ways of delivering drugs. Because one of the big problems with delivering drugs is if you're you know, swallowing a certain drug which has a good therapeutic effect a lot of the time it gets dissolved away in your stomach. By your stomach acids, yeah. yeah. You've got enzymes in your liver which can actually um, can actually destroy the drug before it gets to the place where it's needed. So um, if you've actually got it in this little DNA... Um, taxi. Taxi, yeah. that's a good word, yeah. little DNA taxi, it can um, more safely chauffeur it to the place it's So needed. is this
1: like, basically you're, you're telling me that there's these little nanometer sized pyramids that walk along the inside of your body until they find the right place and then release their drug that they're holding inside?
2: Um, Well, they're sort of two different functions. The walking part is probably a little bit, is less related to the drug delivery part. The drug delivery part, I suppose, is just using it as like a taxi as lock um, reported. And maybe um, within this taxi structure, you've got the drug. And so it'll float through your blood system and then be targeted to a certain area. But it could do both. But it could do both. I mean, this is... If you restructure it slightly, it can then attach itself to um, to uh, a section of protein or another uh, molecule inside a cell, and actually move around up that like a little nanoscopic robot, and then perform you know certain functions on that.
1: So you could send a little robot in to go in and attack. Malignant cancers and viruses. And
2: I suppose I suppose you could. I mean, um, if you think about it, if you could find the right part of, um, a, well, the, maybe a section of DNA in a cell which has gone wrong, which you've identified, or um, an unfunctional protein, you could perhaps target your your DNA molecule to go there, and then um, if you've if you've got a way of repairing it, use it to move up and down and and repair it or excise the bad bit. Could it be used for
0: gene therapy, say, to deliver an operon blocker or something to switch off some nasty genes? I do know there's a specially synthesised peptide called T20, which is used for anti-HIV treatments, and it has to be injected uh, subcutaneously. You can't swallow it because it's uh, far too fragile, so perhaps it would be a good delivery system for that. It's only about uh, 20 or 30 uh, amino acids long. It's a very small, (laughs) short little peptide, but it works a treat in preventing HIV from actually invading a cell in the first place.
2: You have to make sure that there. are able to withstand the body's attack on them. Mm. Well, at the moment they're looking at drug delivery systems of um well they're looking at synthetic materials, polymers that don't get broken down by enzymes in your liver so they're able to to target an area um mm. more effectively. Unfortunately, if they don't get broken down, it's difficult to break them down later on when they're not needed anymore. Um so I suppose with this particular method if they find a way of stabilizing the DNA so it can transport it as effectively as possible, it could proved to be um, a good way of getting drugs that might not normally get to where they're needed to yeah. get there. would be very interesting to find out.
0: And that's all from this edition of Diffusion, the international science show. If you'd like to contact us with feedback, comments, suggestions, wild, passionate praise, proposals of marriage, that sort of thing, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or you can subscribe to our podcast on our website, which is www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. You can also find it at archive.org. Contributing to this program have been Bridget Mullane, Ian Wolfe, Patrick Ruby, and yours truly, Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Patrick here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and will broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. As I said, I'm Lachlan Watmore, and join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Again. Low, low